0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is brought to you by the Texas Outdoor Musical at Paladuro Canyon. There's less than a month left to see the musical this summer. Tickets are selling fast and the run only lasts through mid-August, so don't miss out. Reserve your tickets now at TexasShow.com. That's Texas-Show.com. Also, grab your tickets now for the Hey Amarillo Beer Fest, July 31st at Starlight Ranch Event Center. At the Beer Fest, you'll be able to sample beer from local breweries like Pondicetta, the Big Texan, Six Car, Ald Brewing and Borger, the Toppled Turtle and Dumas, and several more. Tickets are available now at bit.ly slash beerfest21. That's bit.ly slash beerfest21. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I also want to give a podcast shout out to the Citadel Art Museum in Canadian. It's totally worth a visit this summer. Learn more at thecitadel.org. Today's guest is the writer R. Taylor Moore, and this is a re-release of an interview I did with Taylor back in 2019. He's a sixth generation Texan and a former CIA analyst and operative who now lives in Amarillo. When we first spoke, Taylor was in the process of finishing up the first in a series of thriller novels that he's writing. That novel is called Downrange, and it releases August 3rd from the publisher William Morrow. It's already getting great reviews. So we talk about how he ended up writing and living in Amarillo in our conversation about his past with the CIA and why this area continues to play such a big role in his work. So here's Taylor Moore. Taylor Moore, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I uh, I know that we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about, uh, including your writing and your career. But before we get to that point, I, I like to establish my guest in the area. So right. tell me your relationship to Amarillo. How how long have you lived here and how did you end up here?
1: So I'm fairly new to Amarillo. I'll, I'll be about, um, I think it's October, will be six years and. um, I came up here because my wife was uh, originally from Hereford, and uh, had never in my life did I dream I'd be living in the panhandle of Texas, but uh, here I am. She had family here, and once we started having small children, then it was kind of time to come, come home, so here we are.
0: Where were you born and raised? Like, what's your hometown?
1: Yeah, I'm originally from Navasota, which is about okay. 70 miles north of Houston, a uh, smaller town, about oh, seven or 8,000, I think. And I grew up in, um so in some ways Amarillo was familiar to me because I grew up in a farming ranching community, and that's what my family did.
0: Okay, yeah, that, that's what I was wondering yeah. is, you know, even growing up in, in Navasota, which is, um you know, pretty far away in Texas. I mean, did, did you have a sense of the panhandle or any idea about what life was like up here or?
1: Not Anything at all. This, this is the place that you blew through on a, a church ski trip in okay. the middle of the night and you you stepped outside of the gas station and it was, you know, 20 degrees and the wind was 40 miles an hour. And right. I thought, Who lives here? Uh, you know, never did I imagine that I'd actually be living here and going through the the cold and the winds and everything. But uh, but no, I, I, I didn't other than just sort of passing through. I'd never really spent a lot of time in the panhandle. Where did you
0: and your wife meet?
1: We met, so it's sort of interesting, we met um, at a wedding in, uh, in Austin and um, it was just a really like sh- strange deal where I just happened to go up and introduce myself and um, we really hit it off, but I was getting ready to go to graduate school out in California. She was getting ready to start pharmacy school at UT. So we went on a couple of dates, really hit it off. But I was gone and she was gone. And so we would literally, um, we knew each other for seven years before we started dating. Okay. And I, you know, I'd lived in uh, California. I lived in uh, Washington, D.C. and overseas. And, and she had been uh, mostly, I think, down in, in Austin during that time. But we had always kept up. We'd always been friends. And and uh, so when I came back to Texas, uh, she was single and I was single. And things just picked up. But it was a, a seven-year sort of um, uh, stint between uh, when we met and when okay. we st- started really dating.
0: Uh, and we'll cover those seven years, I guess, in a little <laughs> bit. But I, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, your decision with her um, to come back to this area. You know, I know family is a draw, but like um, having lived in so many places like you did, what were your thoughts about Amarillo and coming here and kind of basing, you know, your life here in, in this period?
1: You know, I kind of came up here kicking and screaming a little bit. Uh, it wasn't really my idea to, to do this. There, I, I knew that there were some advantages to it. I knew, uh, you know, a family was important to her and family imp- is important to me. So I understood the drive. However, it's just so far <laughs> it's so far from everything and uh and I basically would have to give up my career as in intelligence and I'd been at that point I guess about a decade in intelligence and I was doing really well and rising in the ranks and um and I knew I'd sort of have to reinvent myself um so it was it was not my um My first option, but you know, love my wife and I want to make her happy, and so I wasn't driving the train to get to Amarillo. Bottom line: Tell me about
0: your career as it is here, like what you started doing, uh, you know, for work once you guys arrived.
1: So when we got here, yeah, so so I needed to reinvent myself, and uh, and I'd always loved oil and gas. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in, in, in energy. Um, even when I was at the, the CIA and, and, and after that I was looking at opportunities and, uh, doing a, a security type work for energy companies when I was in, in the private sector. So I always liked energy. I grew up, uh, we had some oil and gas on our, uh, we farmed and ranched, uh, you know, where I was from. And, and so we always had oil and gas. So I, I had, had been on the other ta- end of the table of mm-hmm. a land man before. So I knew that business, um, so I thought, okay, if, if I'm going to reinvent myself, I'm going to do something and, uh, with something that I, I'm i passionate about and I was passionate about oil and gas. And I, I thought I could do this landman job. So I, I found a, a a guy that was um, doing contract work for some of the bigger oil companies here and, and he hired me on to be um, what they call a surface landman. So I was the guy that would go out and make the deals with the landowners and okay. it worked perfect for me because I know that business. So I could go out uh, to a farmer, or a ranch and say like, I, I get what you're doing here we don't want to interrupt your your operations so let, let's let's work this out and that was always a major goal for me to to make sure that there was that we didn't disrupt as much as possible there's always right. a little disruption when you have a uh, trucks coming up and down your roads but I did my best and, and took a lot of pride in the fact that I I, I think I helped people here and uh, I think I did a good job in that okay so that, I guess the big question for
0: me um, going back to a couple of the things you just casually mentioned is how you know, a kid who grows up in a farm and ranch environment ends up deciding to go into intelligence and, <laughs> and ends up in the CIA. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that path, because you know, I'm like most people. Um, my exposure to the CIA is reading Tom Clancy novels
1: right. and, and right. watching movies. So. How how does that work? So that's one of the first questions people always ask because it it, it just on the surface it makes the least amount of sense. Well, it's not like you I, go to <laughs> UT and
0: major in CIA or something yeah, no, like that.
1: no, you you, know? you don't. And and really the span from the time I was farming and ranching back home to the CIA was only a couple of years. So people say like how did you go from one, uh, you know, you know, running cattle to, you know, running operations or whatever, you know. So I, I, so basically the, the answer is it all makes sense when you hear it out in the long all of it but but basically yeah I, I had always had a passion for uh international affairs. I, I since I was a kid, social studies was my favorite subject. Mm-hmm. I love foreign cultures, I love uh policy, I love international policy. But really, probably what kicked it off, like you know, w- what you really have to ask is why would the CIA want you? Okay, and and so uh, so I basically I had built a sort of a uh, a background that would that lend itself well to, to to that type of work. So uh, right uh, when I was in college, I, I majored majored in journalism. So that step one, you know, you have the ability to write down a story to see what happened and tell that story, which is intelligence. You know, okay, I mean whether you're an analyst or an operator, you're you're out there gathering either gathering information. Or or you're gathering uh, whatever it is, and you're putting it together for someone to to digest, and that's the bottom line. So I did that. I did a study abroad in Mexico, and then when I got out of my first job out of A and M was um, I worked in the Senate Natural Resources Committee in Austin, so I had a little bit more policy experience. Then I ended up going down to South America, and so that's so this really probably is what um, what kind of start, started their interest in in looking at me. But I, I basically backpacked around. Uh, South America by myself for about six months.
0: Just for fun, just to explore <laughs> yeah, a little bit? Yeah. Or? I'd,
1: always, I'd I, Well, I had started Spanish and I wanted my Spanish to get a lot better. So, um, so I, ironically I ended up going, <laughs> my mom, she her, her dad was in the oil and gas business and she'd lived in Venezuela and Argentina and places like that. And I'd always heard these great stories about Argentina. So I said, okay, Argentina, I want to go down there and, and, and practice my Spanish. Well, Little did I know when you get down to Argentina, the Spanish they speak is so much different than anything that we, I mean, I, I literally, I remember stepping off the plane and trying to talk to someone and it was, it was a foreign language, you know, and they speak what they call, you know, Castellano, and it's like a, some sort of a, it's Spanish, but it's, it sounds like Italian and they pronounce Mm -hmm. things differently. So that was an adjustment. But while I was down there, I took a couple of months of Spanish and ended up making friends with this uh, Brazilian guy and his wife and. They sold trips to Antarctica. Somehow this guy convinced me like I needed to go to Antarctica while I was down there. And after I went to Antarctica, he said, you know, you should just backpack around South America. You should just see. And I told this guy, I was like, man, you are crazy. I was like, can you imagine? I know, I'm this farm boy from Texas. You know, I've been around and done a few things. But yeah, backpacking by myself through South America, you know. Uh, it didn't sound like something I was going to do, but for whatever reason, um, I listened to him and, uh, ended up on this Russian icebreaker down to Antarctica. Um, and then when I came back, I booked passage on a cattle boat in the Southern part of Chile that took me, uh, up through Chile. And the good news was, this was all during the millennium. This is uh, this is 1999, and it was it was about to be 2000. So you you can remember the whole Y2K, yeah, Y2K thing. K. So I'm thinking like, well, when the apocalypse comes, here I am. Yeah. You know, like what, what am I going to do down here? I was like, maybe it's better because you know it's a little more primitive. I mean, maybe it, we, they won't miss a beat, you know, because uh, we we're in these little villages and 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 all that. And but I ended up making a lot of friends. Um, uh, i made friends with some Israelis that were traveling down there, some people from Holland, and. I met these two Dutch girls that were when, when we got off the boat and uh, they said they're going up to Bolivia and I didn't really have a, a plan. So they said, do you want to come with us? I was like, yeah, why not? Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't get the, the offer to go to Bolivia every day. So I just, I kind of tagged along with them and we got an Indian guide to, to take us over the Andes through the Atacama Desert and, and uh, Northern Chile and into uh, Bolivia. And then uh, they ended up parting ways. They went back to Holland. And then from there I went to peru and climbed the inca trail and mm-hmm. um and did all that and then came back down the andes got sort of lost in the jungles in bolivia and three days later it was kind of one of these romancing the stone, stone yeah, like exactly. kind of you know the, on the bus with the indians and the chickens are yeah. you know right. like flying around and uh we had to get off at one time and push the bud through the mud through the jungle and got held up at the border and pulled in oh, i got pulled into this Security situation where they were accusing everyone of smuggling cocaine across
0: from Bolivia. Didn't to... find any precious gems or anything. No, in the no, it was
1: nothing but... like that. But it was a harrowing sort of ordeal, and I made it through, and and ended up back and uh, and went back down the Andes uh, on, 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 in Argentina. And end up staying on tobacco ranch down there, or like a tobacco plantation uh, slash cattle ranch, and stayed there for about three weeks, and sort of lived in the lap of luxury. I had some wow. friends that put me up. So after my jungle experience, I got to have this really awesome experience of riding polo horses every day, and uh, and then came back to America, and hmm. that was it. But that so you know so that's a a very long answer to your question. What you know what sort of made them interested in me is doing, but it's, a,
0: it's that exposure to other cultures exactly. and, and maybe that, um, self-reliance and it, self-reliance, yeah. you know, that being, being that able stuff. to
1: handle it, being able to handle that. Cause you know, depending on what you do at the agency, you're put into a, a, a lot of situations where you just got to be able to hand your, handle yourself. You got to be, uh, uh, be able to be alone and you got to be able to make it through one place to the next, you know, and, and I was able to. So
0: one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, having that background, um, there's still the matter of getting a job at the agency, right. and and I don't know how that works. Like, do, do you see, you know, job listings for so, CIA analysts yeah. or something, and you can apply for those, or
1: okay? How so, so that so that was step one, is sort of having that um, that I don't know personality that would uh, that, that would be attractive to mm-hmm. them. Step two is having the education. So uh, I went back and and that's when I after that, you know, I farmed and ranch with my dad for a couple of years and um, and then ended up going back to uh, grad school. And that's when I went to Pepperdine. I was always uh, that was always my passion again was the international stuff. And so I got into a a master's program where I studied international relations and economics. So while I was there, I ended up doing a graduate level internship at the U.S. mission to the European Union. Uh, for the Foreign Agriculture Service. So I end up doing uh, sort of international trade type stuff. So okay. I was working at, the, and, and, and for people that don't know, a mission is basically like an embassy, but an embassy is for a country and a mission is for, would be like a mission to the UN or a mission Got to it. the European Union, if that makes any sense, or a mission to NATO. Uh, so I had that sort of, but it's like basically working in an embassy. So I, not only could I survive in the jungle, I can survive in an embassy, which uh, sometimes it, um, I don't know which one is more dangerous, <laughs> you know, um, but snakes of different, sorts there are snakes of different... different sorts and everywhere you go. And um, and so I had that experience. And then so then you just got to make it through the interview process. And a lot of people don't make it through that. And you got to make it through the polygraph. And and so once I did that. I got the offer, and um, yeah, the rest is history on that one. So I, I know that there are limitations
0: to what you can you know, tell us publicly about what you did, so I'm not going to ask you for that kind of specifics, but... Like, give me an idea, you know, of, of what some of your job entailed. You know, to say I worked for the CIA can mean a lot of different things. Right. So, what kind of work did you do?
1: So that was kind of neat. That was something that I got to experience um, both sides. Well, I say both. There's several sides to the CIA, but I think when people think CIA, they think you're either an analyst or, or operations, and that was um, those are really the two big parts of the of the agency. Uh, so I started out as an analyst, which was pretty cool. Uh, I got to go through the Sherman Kent School, and that's where they teach you how to be an analyst. You know, and They take what you already know from your education experience and make you better. And uh, So I did that for a couple of years. I, I, I did a rotation to the um, the operations center that you always hear about. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool. It was a 24-hour ops center, and uh, I, I worked there for about six months, and you were um, working directly with the uh, president's uh, personal briefers. And um, so that was, you're always sort of keeping them up to date of what's going on. So anything the president needs to go when they go brief them, they're, they're, they've got the most up to date and accurate news. And then you're kind of on watch for anything major happening in the world. If something does, you pick up the phone, you find out who you need to call and you're you're saying, hey, get in here right now and okay. that kind of a thing. And so I did that for a couple of years, and then a, a buddy of mine in a, um, who had been in a, an analyst moved into operations, and he said, man, they're really looking for people right now, and um, it just looked like a neat opportunity. So I ended up switching over to the operations side of the house and went through their uh, training program. They do sort of like, ai don't know if you call it operations one It's got a particular name. I won't get into it just in case I'm not supposed yeah, to. Do that at yeah. But uh, they teach you basic spy tradecraft. I mean, recruiting assets, turning over assets, you know, writing up reports, doing all that kind of stuff. And that was fun. That was really fun. So you got to run through those scenarios and do a lot of practice and and then from there, I went to, uh, I became a targeter. For and by months. targeter, that means what? Uh, so a targeter is uh, basically, depending on what you're targeting. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it sounds like kind <laughs> of what it is, you know. And, and if it's terrorism, you know, if you're if you're working in the counterterrorism center, you're... That you're just means
0: like that's your one specific focus. That, 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 yeah. That, that's so, the so target a, of your work, I guess. So, so it's the, not tar- like you're... Targeting a person and, and trying uh, to do something.
1: Well, I doesn't. mean, yeah, you know, it, it, it's... <laughs> Shut uh, me down <laughs> if, if there's any question that I shouldn't be asking This is you where know. it gets awkward. And I'll say, <laughs> I'll, I will uh, refer you to the CIA's uh, website. Okay, uh, yeah, the, yeah. And the targeter position is on there. But basically, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, if you've seen Zero Dark Thirty, you know, the, the Jessica Chastain character uh, was a targeter. And so you're you're kind of a, a mix between a an analyst and an operations person, even though you're on the ops side of the house. You're digesting a lot of data. You're the ones that are trying to track down the bad guys, you know? And so if it's Osama bin Laden, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're, 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 I mean, you're targeting him, you know, for, for killer capture. I mean, it's the bottom line is um, most people they're going after. They're trying to capture them because they're for a lot of reason They're worth intelligence value. They know a lot. And if there's another attack coming, you want to find out everything you can about that. That's essentially what we did. So you're, you're, so I got to use a lot of my analytical skills, but put them into, the form of uh, of how we're going to do this in a in an operations, and so operations fall to either you know recruitment of, of assets, you know, you're finding people with that know something that we want to know, and how do we get access to that information? If somebody's starting a uh, a nuclear uh, weapons program, you want to find out what they're right, doing, you right. know, if it's a rogue country or whatever it is, you know, you want to know what's happening. If if terrorists get uh, are, are looking for access to uh, weapons of mass destruction, you want to know. You want to know that information, yeah. so that's essentially what you're doing. Is you're trying to find those people who have access to that kind of a thing.
0: So I, I want to get at like what the job is really like in the real world compared to what we see on TV. Because you talk about operations and tradecraft, and I I think of you know going from sitting at a computer to suddenly you're driving a stolen motorcycle you know through yeah, oncoming yeah. Tra- traffic in Venice yeah. or something. You know what we see on TV it, is it close at all to that kind of thing, or is it like way more boring than than we think it is. I
1: mean, you know, I guess the answer is it depends. But but knee jerk uh, it would but say yes, it's way more boring uh, than than yeah, it's not the Jason Bourne type thing that you see. Although there are moments, and and it was never my moment of, of okay. Jason Bourne, but you know you you do hear some harrowing stories now and again. They do happen, and and that's for sure. Um, But no, it's a lot of, uh, you know, depending on where you are, if if you're, um, you know, if you're at headquarters. Yeah, it's a lot of sitting in front of a computer. It Mm -hmm. really is. And a lot of briefing, a lot of, you know, writing papers, reports, that kind of thing. Uh, so the subject matter is always very interesting. But yeah, are you flying through, you know, the street on your on, on your motorcycle, you know, shooting your Glock, you know, no, not it's, it's, it's not as much of that. Now, there are sides of, of the CIA. And again, you can uh, refer you to the website. Uh, but you know, there's the paramilitary officers that uh, that do some pretty high speed stuff and very dangerous stuff. Um, I didn't do that. But they're are the guys you know riding horseback you know across the plains of wherever and hmm. uh, with their AR fifteen in hand and yeah those guys are pretty uh, they do some pretty cool stuff but those, the, it, it's it's a high sp- it's a high speed high stress job and so there ha- there has to be sort of moments of – yeah that's that's one of the like
0: things that. that that I did wonder you know I I hear about career analysts or, or career CIA operatives and I, I just wonder like how sustainable is that over a long time you know with yeah. with the high speed high stress stuff that you talked about. I mean, was, was 10 years, like a good period of time to do it and then move on to something else or, you know, uh,
1: man, that, that, that's a question for, you know, where everyone's a little bit different. And it's one of the reasons I ended up believing. It, it kind of burns through marriages, you know, mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing uh, and depending on if you're getting deployed a lot and all that, there's some people that make it through a career at the, at the agency and, and, um, you know, and say, man, our, my family have never been better. And then there's some people that say, like, man, it ruined my life. So I don't know. Maybe it's no more, uh, no worse than any other, than you know, just life in general. Being in the military. Or it, it, like being in the, it's, it'd be a lot like being in the military, although. Law you know, enforcement. Law maybe. enforcement is very. So it's it's like a lot of these different careers where it's, yeah, I think it would be very hard. And, and depending on, you know, if your spouse isn't in the agency, you can't really reveal everything you're doing. So that's why a lot of people marry from within. I think mm-hmm. that helps because you can talk about your job, and if you can't, that's going to be hard on a marriage, you know. And so it can be very rewarding, and it can be very difficult. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's hard on people, and you see that. You see that. You see the stress get to people.
0: I want to get to the writing aspect that you've alluded to, um, but before we do that, thinking of your transition from CIA to oil and gas and, okay. and being a landman, are, are there any ways that like your previous career kind of equipped you to do different things as a landman? I mean, is, is there something in confidence in your abilities, or able to, you know, understand data or anything like that that
1: kind of transfers or, or makes it better, or is it just a hard shift? You know, I tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, and it probably sounds horrible, and people be like, "Oh, so he was doing this," and I didn't do it in a sinister way, but I always did my research on people that I was going to meet with, and I would always try to find out. Who they were, what motivated them, that kind of a thing, and not necessarily in a bad way, or so I could be um, take advantage of it or anything. Right. But I just like to know what, who I was up against. You know, if you're going into some kind of a negotiation, I want to know if the, if the person's going to come at me hard, if they're gonna, if they're pretty easy to get along with. or they? Do they hate oil companies? Do they want me to be there? Because yeah. you know, I had several experiences, you know, up in the, uh, you know, doing this where. I'd have people like really excited, like bring it on, man, bring on the bucks, you know. And then I'd have some people. I, I'd literally had more than one person in the Panhandle tell me I don't want any more money, and hmm. I don't know how much money you have to have to not want anymore. Um, <laughs> but
0: I'd like to. Uh, I'd
1: I like would, to have that option. I would, to I would decide. You know? I would like to someday. I would like to be uh, there. I'm sorry, um, that's too much. I know. I, I would. I would like to be there. So, but you, you can see how I can at one moment be sitting with someone that's just absolutely like stonewalling me and then the next moment being like, what do we got to do to make this happen, you mm-hmm. know? And, and I feel like that that I did, you know, go back to some of my agency training of just trying to find out what you're up against and, you know, what, whatever obstacle, I mean, or, you know, not even in, in, in terms of, you know, recruitments, but in terms of uh, briefing, you mm-hmm. know, because I did br- tons of briefings. So when I went back and started working with the military, I was really more of an all-source analyst again. So we did a lot of high-level briefings, two-star, three-star generals, that kind of a thing. So I wanted to know what this person was like, because, yeah. you know, you get some people that are kind of prickly and and uh, you just want to know if, if it's going to be like, I'm going to give you my answer. You're going to tell me I'm wrong. I'm going to say, yes, sir, or no, ma'am, or whatever it is, you know, and or, or is, is somebody really going to want the backstory? Some people don't want backstories. Some people want to know everything. Like if you're telling me this is your analysis, why? I want to know why. And you sit there and you just back it up with everything. Yeah. No. You
0: just have to know your audience. I mean, in a situation like that, yes. whether you're
1: selling yep. services or it's marketing knowing, plans or whatever. Right. It's just knowing your audience. And I always like to know my audience. Okay. So, yeah.
0: so I, one of the, the things that, um, that I guess we have in common is that uh, when I was introduced to you, it was as a writer. Yeah. Um, and so I know that that also draws from your CIA background, right. uh, your journalism background, all right. those things. So tell me about... The state of your writing career right now, which I understand is very early stages, right. but but has uh, some good
1: possibilities to it. So, the, so I got to tell you sort of the magic of the panhandle. You know, I told you earlier that I kind of came up here kicking and screaming, which I did, but this place has made my dream come true. I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, my entire life, I've, I've had this desire, and the strange thing is it probably wouldn't have happened had I not come up here and been influenced by some of the people that had Influenced me, so I'm, I'm you know going back to my whole landman thing. Uh, one of the, uh, the first couple of wells that I drilled were on a guy named John Erickson's property. Heard of him, you've heard him, yeah, right? Hank the Cow Count Dog, on. yeah. And so, you know, I had written one book before this back in probably 2000. I just sat down, it was when I was ranching and. And I said, you know, I just want to see if I can do this. So I just sat and wrote a book from start to finish over, you know, the course of a couple of months, never did anything with it. So I told John that I loved writing and always wanted to do that. And he really encouraged me to start doing it again. And I probably wouldn't have done that had it not been for John Erickson encouraging me. And I even ended up reading his book on the subject of writing and it inspired mm-hmm. me that much more. So what I started doing is I started um, taking my laptop with me. So if I had got a lunch break or if I was going to a meeting somewhere, I just sit in my truck and just start just put it on my lap and start writing. And that's kind of what um, what got me going uh, again. That was sort of my transition from an Intel guy to um, oil and gas guy to writer. Is those things led me to to doing what I'm doing now, and even beyond that. Um, so, so my, I guess what I'd say is, while I was doing that, is when I wrote my first book, and when I when I decided to really start writing full time, is when I, I shifted to this you know idea of going back and writing what I know, kind okay. of the intel stuff, and that's when I got into that.
0: For me personally, I've I've always toyed with writing a novel, and I always loved the thrillers and um, you know military stuff and mm-hmm. spycraft and and yeah. all that stuff, but like. It would have involved so much research for me because I don't know anything, you know. Um, And I would think like for somebody like you, that puts you in an ideal position to tell the stories that are very popular, that people like and having the agency experience to back it up. You know, certainly there's still going to be research, but you're not just writing you know, from a state of ignorance, like like somebody like me would be.
1: You know, and, and you're exactly right. So I still do a ton of research, um, but yeah, it's easier if you've been there and had some of those conversations that you're writing about, and know what it looked like, what it felt like, what the person felt like who's sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps a lot. Yeah, and I and I hope that that's something that will translate to the reader. You know, when they're you know they're getting someone who's kind of been there, done that, even though it's not exactly. Um, you know everything I'm writing about is larger than life, but it's it's at least I've sort of been there, at least and known those people personally, and 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 can write from that experience. But you know it doesn't mean you know because I've done that, and, I, and I've I've said this before to people, don't be discouraged that okay you're like well I've never done any of this thing, so I'm just not going to try right try because some of the best writers out there like don't yeah yeah Mark Greeny Brad Thor the big names in the industry. Uh, if, if I remember their background correctly, it has nothing to do with intel, law enforcement, or military. They're just good writers and they do good research, and and they talk to a lot of people. And I still talk to a lot of people. I mean, I've got my little niche, but I've still got friends in special forces that I talk to all the time. You know, write about, a lot about weapons. So um, I've, I've got guys. I you know I know guns, but not like some of my friends do. Right. And so I'll, I'll reach out to those military guys. And I was doing that the other day about you know what kind of weapon. Um, my protagonist is going to carry, and man, we had like a thirty-minute discussion <laughs> over why he would carry this thing, you know. And and uh, and and I want I want to get the details right. So if anybody ever reads a book and you go, "That's not right," just know I'm trying my best, mm-hmm. and I'm talking to people. And um, well, that's
0: the last thing you want to happen is you you can't assume that every detail is going to be right you know especially when you might have some expert in that thing reading right, it right obviously they're going to see that but you don't want the normal reader to like have to step out of it to say oh he got that totally wrong and, and
1: you're and, and you're exactly right about that you're exactly right because there's always going to be so if you can get the basics but but i do want i honestly I, and, and in writing this particular thriller I, I'm, I'm writing something a little bit different and I, and I hope it's it's more of a character-driven thriller if, if that mm. uh if you know what I mean. Um, I still want to have a good plot and I want to have the, the fun twists and everything, but I really wanted to make an effort and go back and, and create characters that you're going to follow in a series that you love and that you want them to see, you want to see them do well. You want to see them thrive and they won't always, they're going to have their you right. know bad times. But, um, but so, so I, I stepped back when I, I, this, this, this process, this, these novels that I've been writing have gone through several iterations and uh, and I went from doing kind of like real techie type stuff to getting in the weeds to less of that. You know what I mean? You, you try to get that sort of happy medium in there. where you are not boring somebody with like pages of right. Well, how you got to choose your genre, you yeah. know. And
0: sometimes yeah. there are real techie genres and that's that Are successful, yeah. but you also want it to be as broad as broadly appealing as possible.
1: You know, yeah, that's right. And so, but I, but I want to get the details right because I you know and I want to honor the um, the soldiers and people that are out there mm-hmm. that I'm going to be reading it by giving due diligence to the, the stuff that they did, you know, yeah. and like re- really doing my my homework, and so that they don't, you know, do the eye roll or whatever. And I,
0: I read a Dean Koontz book where yeah. um, the protagonist was traveling down I forty through the Texas Panhandle okay. and went through a pine forest.
1: Oh, so okay. it, yeah. that's
0: what I always yeah. think of when I'm just like, you know, just a little bit of homework. You can't yeah. just make it up like yeah, that. Yeah, there,
1: there's, I know, you know, poor writers. I mean, we've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm going to get something wrong, but. But you know, and, and that's exactly right. So, so I, I do my best to try to. I, in fact, it's but it's funny. So, I, so I've got a friend who's a um, a one sixtieth pilot. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with one sixtieth. They're what they call the night stalkers. That's the okay. army special operations helicopter. You know, those are the guys that that do all the really spooky stuff at right. night, and you know, take in the special ops guys. And so he's helped me out with some of my flying helicopter scenes. And and so when I told him what I was doing and in the weather I was doing it, I said, um, I said now remember. This isn't, should you do this? It's, could right. you do this? And Is so he it got, possible? Yeah, is it possible? So, yeah, some people may read it. May, maybe there's an eye roll. But just so you know, yeah. I, I, I talked to a guy who's been there, done that, and says it can be done. So, yeah. so, but if, know, if
0: there's yeah. one person who can dispute it versus you, you know yeah, the yeah, three right. million people who know there's not a forest in the middle of the panhandle, yeah. that's, that's better. Yeah. Tell me about the status like of... Uh, of your writing right now. So I, I know you're sort of in a transitional period, finishing up some manuscripts. Um, I mean, What do you want to share about where things are and, and where you hope yeah. your career kind of
1: goes from here? Hopefully my career is going great places from here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm getting hopefully towards the end. This has been a long process. I have a, a great uh, literary agent that has been just spot on, great, uh, provides the best counsel, a guy I could ask for, a guy named John Talbot in New York. So I'm, I'm working with him to, to get something ready to submit to publishers. And I've got I, I'm very close to having something that he and I both think is ready to go. Um, so hopefully I'll have that within um, probably the month or so next month or so back to him and then kind of ready to submit. But just, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of tell you just because a lot of people ask me about, you know, writing and publishing and agents and all that kind of stuff i tell you, it's a long... To, to do it right, uh, to really... Well, I say do it right. You, there's, there is no right or wrong. Right. But if you want to go traditional and you want to get a big publisher and you want to get the good agent and all that, it is very, very long, hard, grueling work. And, and that's one thing I've learned. And this isn't just my experience. It's from people that I know. And then having gone up to Thriller Fest in New York and hear the big uh, guys like Harlan Coben uh, that get up and talk, I have yet to encounter a big name, that you the household name, that wrote a book and went, "Wow, I'm a best-selling author." Yeah, everybody struggled for years, and that—that that is the common story you hear: is that people struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled for years to break in, and once you do, it's still a struggle. You know, yeah. it's it's still that climb. Um, but I, I'm 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 dipping my toe. I'm I'm kind of I feel like I'm right there, and hopefully I am, you know, and, and I never want to count my. Uh, count my chickens before they hatch, but I, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in a good place to sort of get this thing started and it's taken a long time to get here. But I tell you, the process is, is important because I've written things in, um, and you know, I've had, you know, I've got a good critique group. I've, you know, totally with, uh, you know, Jody Thomas, Linda Brody and Bruce Edwards, all published authors, great authors that have taken me under their wing and, mm-hmm. um, you learn as you go and it takes a long time and it takes a lot of trial and error and mistakes, to get uh, to a point to where you feel like you're ready, ready for the big leagues, and 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 it's just hard and it's grueling, man. That's all I can tell you.
0: I, I've been there. You know, I, can, you I can, know. Yeah. I can agree with the grueling part. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're you're six years into being a resident of the Panhandle. Yeah. Um, you found a community of writers. You're doing work that that you love, um, and and you are have a background in like gathering data and stuff. Yeah. So so tell me like what's something that you've learned about the people here or about this place, you know, now that now that you're several years into your your stay?
1: Yeah, I love Amarillo. I love the Panhandle. Um, Like I said, again, kicking and screaming up here and would be hard pressed to get me to move right now, you know, unless something came up that, you know, unforeseen. But I like it here. I'm raising my family here. It's a great place. I love the people. I've made lots of friends, Uh, the writing community. I I don't want to bash other writing communities because I don't know them, but I'm just going to take a wild guess that they are not as good as this one it's and not very as, strong here yeah, yeah it is very strong and very welcoming and and, and you don't get the people that are like kind of upset when you're doing well everybody sort of rallies around and helps one another and um and no so th- th- my experience in the panhandle having gathered everything about it is that i, I love it i love it here <laughs>
0: This episode of Hey Marilla is brought to you by my friends at the WT Enterprise Center, which this month celebrates its 20th year of helping local entrepreneurs build great companies. I spent several years as a mentor with the Enterprise Center. I'm also an entrepreneur myself, and the support and encouragement they offer is invaluable to this community. Let's say you have a business idea, but you're not sure where to start. Or you have an existing business, but you're going through growing pains. You're dealing with things like funding or marketing or your business model. The experts at the Enterprise Center can help coach you through every step in the process and connect you with the right resources to address those problems and grow your business. Learn more at WTEnterpriseCenter.com. Okay, I'm back with Taylor Moore. Taylor, this is a part of the show I call Eight Straight. 8 Strait is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight types of military uniforms over the past couple of centuries. Learn more at Um, panhandleplains.org. My first question is one that's really specifically for you. I understand that the Panhandle... As a setting like plays a role in in the the book that you're writing now or the series that you're right. you're working on so tell me what parts specifically of the panhandle like um are fascinating to you or which parts are going to play like a role in in your story
1: so the book will be set and the series will be set in roberts county and um and I, I think and I know probably people are thinking how can you make a series in, in roberts county believe me i I've, I've got ideas and yeah. you'll just have to trust me but Robert's County really impressed me when I when I first came up and I was doing the landman stuff and was driving around. Um, you know I'm a Texan, I've been here forever um, from Central Texas, but when I when I came up and I, and I went north of Pampa and I started seeing the Cap Rock and and I, I just I can't tell you how um, amazed I was at how beautiful it was, how vast it was. It just I was enchanted every time I drove past and I, and I literally I remember thinking I hope this sort of like wonder never dies, you know, like, because I, I was making that trip so often that I knew eventually I'd probably just start looking at the road like everybody else. But I didn't want to do that because I could imagine cowboys, you know, riding across the the plains. I could imagine, you know, Indians sitting up on, you know, the Comanche up there on, on top of the Cap Rock looking over. And my imagination just went crazy when I got here. It was just a place that just sparked my interest. And then the people I met, I mean... <laughs> You know, especially doing the oil and gas thing. I mean, I met some characters, you know, some people treated me really great and some people were not happy, you know, for me to be there. And so I saw the the best and worst in people in the panhandle and that's fine. And um, but it sort of helped uh, spark some some creativity in my head on on creating characters. And so a lot of the characters that in my books are the ones that I've met Mm -hmm. and they may not be that particular person, but they're a combination of five, six, seven different people that I met along the way. And things they've sort of said in a general sense, you know, to me that I thought were funny or whatever. And so I, I sort of what I do in my my uh, even though it's sort of a military thriller, it's it's kind of a modern day Western. The series will be in and uh, and I wanted to, to I wanted to marry up the new with the old. I, I really try to in the first part of the book uh, give people a sense of the history here, what the people are like, what the people who settled it were like and sort of give you an idea of what these modern day characters really aren't that much different than the people who settled it. And that's why they're tough, and that's why they can take on these bad guys. And they have this sort of different uh, ethos that okay. uh, that that I think will be interesting for readers that are here, but readers that are, aren't from here. I'm trying to do a level of world building for people that are from outside of the, the Texas panhandle, because, again, I'm from Texas. But this was a whole different experience right, uh, right. in and of itself, moving up here and just meeting the people and seeing the, the territory and just the Yano Estacado, the, the vast, just like endless... I mean, it just, it amazes me. It absolutely amazes me and still does when I go up and I've been doing, I've been going back up. I had, you know, to do more research and, um, and, and I'm still as in love with it as, uh, when I first started going up there. So it's really cool.
0: What's your favorite local coffee shop?
1: Uh, the palace, man, the palace, uh, 34th and Coulter is where you'll find me. Right, stay. That's your place. That's my place. And, uh, Patrick should, should charge me rent. He's nice mm-hmm. enough not to, but I'm there most days writing and uh and there's an energy there that's good it's great for writing I don't know what it is but when I get there I just focus in and even if it's loud and noisy or whatever it is um I can just focus in and write and I I get a great energy there and it's just good people I made a lot of friends there the baristas are always great and friendly and nice and yeah I love the palace what does this area have too much of too many allergens. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> since I moved here, I have year-round allergies that I can never shake, and I don't know what it is. But I don't.
0: I don't think that's rare for people okay. that did not grow up here. You yeah, know, that are, are transplants to this area. Yeah,
1: I don't know what it. That's that's my only real complaint about them. I love the weather here. I, I love cold weather, so I love it when it gets cold, and the wind gets annoying at times. But you know, I can I can kind of take it. But yeah, those allergens, man, that's bad. <laughs> All right, what does this area not have enough of? I could use a few more trees. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no. You know, I grew up with trees. And I, yeah. n- I never knew to appreciate trees till I moved here. And um, yeah, I do miss trees a little bit. And we have some, but yeah, every now and then I, I could use a little more shade. But but that's it. That's about it. All right. That, yeah. That's that's Is that a fair? Is that's that a fair, fair criticism? I, I, one of my
0: guests once was an arborologist, and yeah. um, one of the things he said was that in most parts of the country, people who have my job are taking trees down. Here we are preserving and trying to keep the trees and
1: keep them healthy. Let me tell you, I and it's funny you say that because I, I was, I was going to say too, I said, you know, in my part of the world, farming and ranching where we did, we spent the most of our life trying to kill things. Because, yeah. you know, you put up on a, a barbed bar wire fence and you don't watch it. A couple, of three years, it's gone. It's just overtaken by vines or whatever. Right. So we're tr- constantly trying to kill things. Here you're constantly trying to get things to grow. So it's just kind of an interesting okay. uh, change. Yeah. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? It's like an island with no water. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that did take a little getting used to when I moved up here is how far it is from everything. Right. And, uh, and I said it's like being in an, on an island somewhere. You're just a million miles from, from anything. And, uh, but you're surrounded by grass, you know, and not water. Uh, and I remember when I first moved up here, I don't know why I thought in my head, I thought, well, you know, at least we'll be close to Dallas. But we're really not close to Dallas at all. No. I don't know why I thought that. But um, but you're you're far from everything. So it, 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 just, it took some getting used to just how far of a drive everything is. But now that I, I'm here, I kind of like it. You know, I kind of like being out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of nice, you know. When was the last time you went to the Big Texan? The big Texan. I think it has been about two years. I think it was my son's birthday, and that's coming up. Okay, so I need to get back. Yeah, that's been too long. Yeah, two
0: years. That's that's not bad for for a local. Yeah, locals. You know, sometimes it's years and years before they get back there.
1: What's your favorite street in Amarillo? I think Polk Street. Probably everybody says that, or maybe maybe they don't. I don't know. It's been downtown. Yeah, I love the downtown. Uh, I think it's neat. Even before the uh, revitalization. Uh, happened. I liked downtown. I thought it was neat. I just thought it was a cool, sort of old school West Texas downtown and, right. uh, with a neat history to it. And I love that kind of stuff. And so, uh, but I love the I love, love the restaurants. I love everything that's happening. The ballpark is cool. I mean, I, I like a, a neat downtown that has stuff going on too. So uh, I love it down there.
0: Okay. And you mentioned
1: the uh, restaurants. What's your favorite local restaurant? You know, there's there's a lot of great restaurants. Narrowing down, uh, it's hard, but. Um, yellow city street food is a place that I crave and I love going there, uh, for lunch. Never had a bad meal. The service is always great. Great craft beer. Um, so it's kind of hard to beat in my book. I just love all the stuff we're getting in Amarillo. I mean, you know, again, I came here six years ago and it really wasn't, I mean, I don't feel like it's that long, but in six it's years, a lot has changed. we've gone from years. like two restaurants to, I mean, I don't know how many now, but, um, but no, that's, I, yeah, I love it.
0: Okay, Taylor, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something related okay. to the area. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience?
1: If you don't mind, I'm going to endorse two because one's a, uh, a service that the city provides. Okay, I'll but, allow it. But one's a business. And, and I just did this about two or three weeks ago. Uh, it's called Rotor, Rotor Recoil, and okay. it's up at the Mendota Ranch, and Jason Abraham puts it on. And basically, he straps you into a helicopter, gives you an AR-15, and you fly around his ranch shooting targets. All right. And, I, and I, uh, I'll do the air quotes here. It was for book research, which it really was. Sure. It was. That's a big part of the book. But, uh, but it was probably the, one of the best times I've had in my life. So if you're if you if that is a bucket list thing or you need something for your bucket to, list to shoot an to, automatic to, weapon yeah, from a helicopter, yeah, from a helicopter it, while hanging out of a helicopter, it, it's kind of hard to be. There is and, a place uh, you can do that. Yeah, so Rotorico, is. that was pretty cool. And and he's he's a good host. And that was really fun. So I'll, 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 you know, for people around here that are local, it's, you know, less than a couple hours to get to that and a lot of fun. The one thing I wanted to tell you, um, and and again, it's a city, uh, something that the city provides is the Amarillo uh, Citizens Police Academy. And I did that last fall. It's a great service that the city provides. And if you're not familiar with it, basically, um, but you go for a couple of months, I think it's every Tuesday night and, and you learn a little bit about the police department. There's a few weekends involved but you do, you get to drive their cars as fast as they go on the track. Mm. You get to shoot all their weapons. You get to go through their simulator where they do sim- simulate crimes and you get to go in there and, and do the simulations and all that. Um, and you get to do three ride alongs with a police officer and, and you want to talk about an eye-opening experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been support- supportive of law enforcement, but I always had my preconceived notions that, you know, they're all out to get you and they're like looking for any little infraction and you get out there and you realize, yeah, they 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 got plenty to do. They're not looking for anything. Right. The the, the is constantly like going, and they've got lots to do. And there's a lot happening in Amarillo, so I recommend it for anyone that's just interested in what's going on. It's a, it, again, it's it's free. The, the city puts it on, and um, it, they do a very good job of it. And if you've got questions, they got answers. So, yeah. Taylor Moore, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Thanks appreciate for it. Me. No, I appreciate it. Great to be here.
0: And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Taylor for the original conversation. You can learn more about his new book at rtaylormore.com. You can find it on Amazon or better yet, you can order it from Burrowing Owl Books in Amarillo and Canyon. Thanks to my friend Angelina Marie for editing the podcast every week. I also want to say thanks to this week's show sponsors, the Texas Outdoor Musical and the WT Enterprise Center. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jess Heredia, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Barbara and Jim Witten, Chris Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, and Wes Reeves. This has been episode 206. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.